I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Well, here we are, beginning a brand new year, reading our Bibles through. For the first six months of this year, we'll be looking at the Gospels. Now, the way we look at them is in chronological order. In other words, the events happen in a specific order. Sometimes just one Gospel writer reports on those events. But sometimes two, three, or even four Gospel writers report on the very same events. So, for that reason, we look at all the accounts by the Gospel writers on the same given day that we read that passage from any of the Gospel writers. So we go chronologically through the Gospel accounts. Today we'll be looking at the beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. We see the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17. Mark doesn't deal with that genealogy, but Luke does in Luke chapter 3 verses 23 through 38. So we'll skip all the way down and look at Matthew's genealogy, and then Luke's genealogy in 23 through 38 of chapter 3. And then John simply begins to talk about who Jesus is with regard to God in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and we'll look at those verses. Let's take some time here to talk a little bit about the Gospels and their relationship to one another. Why do we have four records of Jesus' life? Isn't that kind of redundant, you might ask? When you've looked closely at the records of Jesus through the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you realize that each of them, while recalling for us many of the same incidents in the life of Jesus, approach these happenings from a different perspective, many times recalling varied information about the very same incident. Here's an example. Let's say my wife and I each view the same automobile accident, maybe just a fender bender, but she's on one side of the street and I'm on the other. First of all, we each may see details about the accident from where we're standing that the other may not see. But that's not all. As the drivers emerge from their vehicles, each of us may take notice of different things about the drivers based upon our individual interest in previous life experiences. My wife may notice the clothes the drivers are wearing, well, and that's likely, but I might focus more on what I think went wrong to cause the accident. She might pay more attention to what the drivers say to each other afterwards, while I might be observing the congestion being caused by their automobiles blocking the roadway. Later on that day, when we begin telling the story, our accounts of that story obviously describe the same incident, but her color information may be quite different from my own. Well, from two different perspectives. That's why we have four accounts of Jesus' life, four different perspectives. Moreover, the words actually spoken by Jesus and others may often vary between the Gospel accounts. That's why it's necessary to compare all accounts when studying the ministry of Jesus as conveyed in the parallels of the Gospels. So now let's talk about each of the individual Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew. Nowhere in the Gospel of Matthew is it explicitly stated that Matthew wrote this Gospel account. But from the first century on, it was universally agreed that he was and is the undisputed author. Matthew was one of the twelve apostles of Jesus Christ, 
His background was tax collecting prior to following Jesus as a disciple. Also known as Levi, we see his story in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, Mark chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, and Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Yes, Matthew had been a government worker, and not a very liked one at that. His previous life had been all about money. It appears that this gospel was written for the Jewish Christians of Palestine. Matthew sets out to prove that Jesus was and is the promised Messiah, and that in him the prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled. This gospel is full of allusions to those passages of the Old Testament in which Christ is prophesied. Then we have the Gospel of Mark. Mark is also known as John and also known as John Mark. Acts 12.25, we see that he was not one of the disciples of Jesus as far as we know. His first appearance in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, is where he is mentioned along with his mother, Mary. It appears that their home was a gathering place for the disciples of Jesus. Mark was a cousin to Barnabas, we see that in Colossians 4.10, and seemed to have had a special relationship with the apostle Peter. It would appear from 1 Peter 5.13 that Mark was converted through the ministry of Peter. It is generally believed that Mark wrote his gospel from Rome some years later after and derived his information from the first-hand accounts of Jesus' life through the eyes of Peter and other followers who gathered at Mark's home during the years after Jesus' ministry. Mark was educated. His gospel seems to have an emphasis which would have been of interest to a Roman audience. Mark does not include the genealogy of Jesus. He's careful to translate Aramaic words which a non-Jewish audience might not understand otherwise. Mark only quotes from the Old Testament twice in his entire account. Then we have the Gospel of Luke. Based upon Luke's inclusion with Gentiles rather than Jews in Colossians chapter 4 verse 10, it is generally believed that Luke was a Gentile who came to know Christ. He was probably a physician. Luke was Paul's constant companion during his journey to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20 verse 6. We see that. Luke does not claim to have been an eyewitness of our Lord's ministry, but he does claim to have gone to the best sources of information within his reach, and to have written an orderly narrative of the facts. We see that in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Notice the following observations that Easton's Bible Dictionary makes. Out of a total of 1,151 verses, Luke has 389 in common with Matthew and Mark. He has 176 in common with Matthew alone, 41 in common with Mark alone, leaving 544 references peculiar to himself. In many instances, all three use identical language. It is obvious to those who read Luke's account from the Greek text that his style is more refined and classical than the other accounts. After all, he was a doctor, we assume. It is commonly believed that Luke consulted with Paul in compiling his gospel. Luke traveled with Paul and is also the author of the book of Acts. Then we have the Gospel of John. There's no question but that the Apostle John wrote this Gospel. Equally clear is his intention for writing it all down in John chapter 20 verse 31 where he says, But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. 
John doesn't do the genealogy that Matthew and Luke do, but starts right in with the deity of Jesus Christ in his very first chapter. Likewise, his gospel does not track very closely with the events covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It seems to fill in the gaps with much information not found in those other three accounts. The Gospel of John appears to order the events of Jesus' ministry chronologically, being careful to mention the occurrence of the four Passover observances during Jesus' ministry. So, here we have four different perspectives. In four Gospels, we have four different perspectives of Jesus' life. That's why this commentary, as much as possible, presents all four perspectives of the same incident grouped together in the same section of each of our daily readings. Now let's talk for a moment about the language of the Gospels. Two Semitic languages were common in New Testament times, Aramaic and Hebrew. As a matter of fact, since Aramaic was written using Hebrew characters, the distinction between these two Semitic languages is not always clear. Aramaic was commonly spoken by the Jews in New Testament times. The Gospel accounts record Christ's words in Aramaic on three different occasions. Mark chapter 5 verse 41, Mark chapter 7 verse 34, and finally on the cross in Mark 15 34, Matthew 27 46. When Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he addressed God as the Father, as Abba, Aramaic for the word Father. We see in Luke 23:38 and John 19:20 that the words written on the cross were in the letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. Since Alexander the Great had established his dominion over that region, Greek had become the language of commerce. Later on, the Romans introduced Latin. In Acts 26:14, Paul mentions that he heard the risen Christ speaking to him in the Hebrew tongue, most likely to be understood as Aramaic. The Gospel accounts were written sometime after the ministry of Jesus. There's no evidence that any of these accounts were ever recorded in any language other than in Greek. When these writers were recalling the life and ministry of Jesus, they recorded these occasions in Greek from the very beginning. There's been some unfounded speculation by credible scholars that perhaps Matthew first recorded his Gospel in Aramaic from which it was later translated into Greek. However, there is no supporting evidence for that theory, and Aramaic, quite frankly, wasn't commonly a written language. It was more a spoken language. Undoubtedly, Jesus spoke in whatever language was appropriate for his audience on any given occasion. Aramaic, Hebrew to Jews, and Greek to Gentiles. The balance in the New Testament was, without question, recorded originally in Greek. For the purpose of this podcast, I'm going to be reading the genealogies in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 from the New King James Version. The reason is because the New King James editors made certain that they coordinated the spellings of the Old Testament characters listed with the way they're spelled in the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amenadab, Amenadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, 
Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. And Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Jehoram. And Jehoram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. And Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Amon. Amon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about this time that they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtel, and Shealtel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiud begot Eliakim, Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mothan, and Mothan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations, from David until the captivity in Babylon are fourteen generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are fourteen generations. Now in Luke's account, we start at the birth of Jesus Christ and move backward. So let's go through these, beginning with Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mothet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jana, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maoth, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Semai, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Joannes, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatael, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Josi, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mothet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Menan, the son of Martha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Solomon, the son of Nashon, the son of Amenadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So you'll notice from the reading of those genealogies that Matthew goes forward through his genealogical account and Luke goes backwards. Luke in his account goes all the way back to Adam, but Matthew seems to be satisfied simply to show the Jewish ancestor Jesus back to Abraham. Matthew lists the legal line of descent probably to demonstrate the validity of the Messiahship of Jesus. Luke, on the other hand, lists the actual physical ancestry of Jesus in great detail. 
Both genealogies make a path from Abraham to Jesus, but Luke's list completely departs from that of Matthew after David. The records converge for only two generations between David and Joseph. I've provided a chart in the written account of BibleTrack.org for today's reading that you may want to consult that shows the parallels and the differences in genealogies. Now, if you've gone to BibleTrack.org for today's reading, January 1st, and studied the charts that I've listed there, you may be asking yourself, what is the answer to these apparent discrepancies in these two records? After all, it's not a case of a name left out here and there, or another one added. These records are very, very different. The most logical answer to this question is that Luke lists the genealogy of Mary, while Matthew lists the genealogy of Joseph. But wait, don't both genealogies contain Joseph? Yes, but women didn't count in genealogies as far as Jewish records were concerned. Eli was listed as Joseph's ancestor, but was probably his father-in-law instead. That precedent is seen actually in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 16, where there Saul refers to David as my son David. You will also notice in the King James Version that in each instance in Luke's genealogy, the words the son of are italicized. That's because those words were added to clarify the Greek phrasing. Literally, the Greek phrasing between the generations instead of the son of is literally of the. The actual Greek word for son is not found in any of those verses in Luke's account, except for verse 23 where it says of Jesus being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. Luke's account likely traces the ancestors of Mary from David, but lists Joseph as Heli's son, though really his son-in-law, because in Jewish genealogies, as I said, women don't count. Now we come to the book of John, and John simply starts with the deity of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of that light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth." Well, in John's account, there is no physical ancestry for Jesus. He heads straight for the heart of the matter. Two verses in this passage sum it up. That's verse 1, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Everything in between those two verses is self-explanatory. Jesus is God in the flesh, the creator of the universe. It is undeniable based upon these 14 verses of John alone. We see the role of John the Baptist mentioned, and that will be developed later on. Now, verses 12 and 13 outline the clear intent of John's gospel. 
to point people to salvation through Jesus Christ. These two verses clearly state the necessity of receiving Jesus Christ as one's personal Savior and thus be given the power of a child of God. Verse 13 makes it clear that this is a spiritual birth experience. Verses 2 and 3 make a special point that Jesus was the creator of all things. Genesis 1.26 says, Let us make man in our image. Could this be a reference to the Godhead? Well, many scholars think so, and I'm comfortable with that view as well. However, that interpretation is not universal among fundamental Bible scholars. Paul uses the word Godhead in the context of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in, uh, in being in one in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. He says this, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That passage conveys the same doctrine of Jesus as the Creator. Notice these other notable verses on the same issue written by Paul in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Who, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Verse 16. For by him were all things created there in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Verse 18, and he, being Jesus, is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And finally in verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, should all fullness dwell. There could be no scriptural dispute regarding the identity of Jesus. He is very God, a member of the Godhead. John goes on in verses 4 through 9 to emphasize the mission of Jesus' manifestation on earth. He came as the light of men. John the Baptist is mentioned here as well. He's the forerunner of Jesus, the one who announces Jesus. Verses 10 and 11 summarize the rejection of Jesus, but with the promise of verses 12 and 13, that for those who do receive Jesus as their personal Savior, they receive the privilege of becoming the sons of God. The term believe on in verse 12 literally means to exercise faith in. That's what scriptural salvation is all about. Trusting, exercising faith in Jesus as one's only means for getting to heaven. If you're confused at all about the issue of salvation and what it takes to get to heaven, Read my topical article entitled, What the Bible Says About Eternal Life. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.